I'm Caitlin. Hi, I'm Rebecca. We're not from Memphis, but we love it. Welcome to Memphis Type History, the podcast. Okay, Caitlin, what'll it be? I'll take Graceland 2 for 200. Okay. In 1990, this man began hosting tours of his Elvis Shrine home in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Oh, I uh, I have to answer. Uh, <laughs> it's like, yes, tell me more. What is Graceland 2? No. Would you like me to repeat that? <gasps> yes. <laughs> in 1990, this man began hosting tours of his Elvis Shrined home in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Oh, I don't know. I don't know his name. The answer is Paul McLeod. Oh, Paul McLeod. Yes. <laughs> okay. This is, that's the only reason I've never been on Jeopardy. I don't listen to the questions. Yeah, sorry, you don't get 200. Um, okay, so imagine this. 1980s, nice quiet neighborhood, and a man by the name of Paul McLeod arrives in Holly Springs, Mississippi, in a pink Cadillac and dressed like Elvis. He moves into this home, and it's apparent that he is a huge fan of Elvis. So much so that he even named his son Elvis Aaron Presley McLeod. Wow. Yes. Now, I'm a fan of Elvis, but not to this degree. He transformed his home in Holly Springs, Mississippi. And let me just say this, too. I'm aware that Holly Springs isn't part of Memphis, However, many people from Memphis visited this home, and it's named Graceland 2, and you'll learn why, okay? I think it's totally legit. Yeah, I mean, there is one real Graceland, and this guy got to call his home Graceland 2, and that's T-O-O, not, not the number 2. So it's all, yeah. he's saying, like, this is also Graceland, and it's because he filled his home with Elvis memorabilia and... You'll later hear people's firsthand experience of, of what this place was like. Uh, he transformed his home into Graceland 2 and opened it for tours in 1990. And the house itself went through different paint periods. You know, at times it would be jailhouse rock gray. It could be pink Cadillac pink. At times it was blue, which I'm guessing was either blue suede shoes or blue Hawaii. It became a really well-known tourist attraction. But I think more than the house... I think Paul McLeod himself was a big attraction because of how quirky yeah, he was. I think so. I didn't know any of this, and I kind of took it for granted. People had told me it was up my alley, something I should go try and, and check out. And But I kept hearing, like, you don't want to go by yourself. Like, you shouldn't go by yourself, and it is far a little bit of a trip. And, and then I, I think I just kind of forgot about it. And then until July of 2014, news articles showed up on social media. Do you remember what that could have been? I do because I also have the same story of never going. Yeah. Those are the same reasons I never got it together and went. And right. then Mr. McLeod passed away. Well, before that, he shot and killed a man. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I was at his front door. It was like 11 p.m. Man knocks on his door, starts demanding money. Paul feels threatened and shoots him and kills him. And then just two days later, he's found Paul McLeod is found dead in his porch. So he didn't get, um, oh, what's the word when it, you get charged? He didn't get charged with anything. Charged is the word. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he, he returns home, but just two days later. And he had already had health issues, and I think the stress of shooting somebody just added to it, and his heart didn't take it. But anyhow, shortly after, uh, I went to a, it was like a exhibit at Crosstown Arts, 
And I'm seeing all the stuff that was from his house. There's showing YouTube video documentaries uh, or just they were documentaries at Crosstown Arts and all just random stuff from his house. And I thought, man, I just really missed out on Graceland 2. And just to give you a little idea of the character of Paul himself, I'd like to read an excerpt from a BuzzFeed article. Okay. Just a couple of paragraphs. And it says, Paul was unreachable unless you stopped by Graceland 2. He had no telephone, rang the bell on the front door, pay a fee, and the final year is $5. And Paul, usually wearing black jeans and a rumpled Hawaiian shirt, would rise and let you in. As with the real Graceland, visitors were never allowed upstairs. He also ne never let anyone use the bathroom and did not have running water, which was a problem when your primary clientele was drunk college students, as you probably know. Yeah. At the end of tours, Paul would grab a neon green and pink ice cream cone microphone and sing and imitate Elvis's pelvis shake. According to Paul, a lady wants to pee herself watching him sing. We had to get Lysol, Paul said. So that... <laughs> Did she throw her panties as well? Like what also happened to Elvis often? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. You know, unfortunately, we can't ask Paul if that happened. Man. But in order to get a glimpse of who Paul was, what this place looked like, I found a collection of people to talk to interview. And the first person I interviewed is a guy by the name of Darren DeVolt, who uh, published a book called Graceland 2 Revisited. This is what it looks like. You see it? Ooh. And he documented Graceland 2 during its blue period. As you can see, the whole house is painted blue. I think even the windows are painted blue. I recommend it. It's a great book, has great pictures. And on show notes, uh, he sent over some photographs that we could put so people can see pictures that are also in this awesome. book. But yeah, it's called Graceland 2 Revisited. He's also a publisher for DeVault Graves Agency. And this is what he had to say. So you lived in Memphis before. I did. Is that uh, where you're from? Uh, the, most recently, I uh, uh, was working at the University of Memphis from January of 2011 until August of last year. And I, I had a home in East Tennessee in the Smoky Mountains. And mm -hmm. also, uh, part of the time when I was uh, working at the University of Memphis, I lived out in East Memphis near the Yorkshire uh, uh, neighborhood and Wickerman Nature Center for, let's say, 2011 through 2015. During your time here, you regularly visited Graceland too? Or how did that well, come about? What happened is I've got a good friend um, that I run around with. He lives in Midtown. His name is Tom Graves. He's a, a teacher buddy of mine. He teaches at Lemoyne Owen. He's an English professor. We used to run around all over Memphis taking photographs of things that caught our eye. Uh, the weirder, the better. Yeah. So he calls me in um, early July of 2011, and it's actually his birthday. He said, Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? Today's my birthday, and I want to take a little side trip to Holly Springs, Mississippi. So I was game. He said, bring your camera. We're going to visit Graceland 2. I'd always heard about Graceland 2, but had never had the opportunity to visit until that day. That fateful day uh, in July, it was sweltering humidity uh, as, as uh, Memphis is in the, in the deep south. Uh, we rolled over to Holly Springs, which is an hour and hour and a half away and rolled in and knocked on the door and Paul McLeod greeted us and all I could see is his large frame filling the, the uh, doorway 
and I could hear box fans running in the background. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's going to be sweltering hot inside this house. <laughs> and it was. it was. We paid our $5 uh, to take the tour. He stopped whatever it was he was doing in the middle of the afternoon and proceeded to give us a tour room by room. And um, Paul was, he was a character. Yeah. How big was this house? The house was a two-story. It was an antebellum home. And at one time, you could tell it had been a real stately home. Uh, you know, the, Holly Springs is filled with a lot of homes that are on the National Historic Register. And this home at one time, you could tell, had been cared for. But in the, and, and I understand in the early years of Graceland, too, would, I think he had the attraction open maybe 23 to 25 years. I think that time uh, frame is correct. And uh, through the years, he became more and more eccentric. When we arrived, the home was painted entirely blue. It was a kind of a light blue, including the, the roof was painted uh, uh, also a, a kind of a strange, uh, strange color. It was just a... Bizarre. Yeah. Did the place. it looked like the in the picture the windows were even painted blue? Yeah, they just painted over what was there before. Okay, and I understand the the period before the blue period was a kind of a it was a pink color that resembled a, a bottle of Pepto Bismol. <laughs> and how many times did you go? Well, I went with Tom Graves on um, on that day in July eleven. Mm-hmm. And I did not return until Paul's untimely death a few a few years later. And you got to document and that as well, right? We got to go in uh, after his death. Mm-hmm. They had a final tour day, and uh, Tom and I went in and um, documented some what was there in the house on the final the day of the final tour. So we we our our book photos include images from both visits mm-hmm. so it's like while he was alive and when he gave, gave us the tour and then also uh, right after his death okay did it feel different going back there there were a lot of people there on the day um we, we, when we returned it was august mid-august of 2014 and we actually attended fall, paul's funeral service which was held about two blocks away from uh, Graceland 2 at the Christ Episcopal Church. And um, Bruce McMillan was the reverend who gave the, you know, the, the eulogy and conducted the service that day. And then afterwards, everyone walked back um, to Graceland 2, and they, you know, they opened it for tours that day. And there were some people, some longtime friends of Paul's who were, who were there. Um, there was a guy named Michael Butcher that, that comes to mind. And Michael's part in the final tour was to, to lead people through the backyard. That's a whole separate topic that we'll, we can talk about in a, in a few minutes. And then uh, there's a, a young lady named Amanda Partridge from um, uh, who lives in the Birmingham area. And she was leading people through the middle section of the house where there was this um, hall of fans. The deal was when Paul operated Graceland 2, he paid $5 on the first visit, $5 on the second visit, and $5 on the third visit. Well, on the third visit, you became a lifetime member, and then you you could enter uh, free. It was free admission thereafter. Did he, doc, like, how do you, how would he know that you visited three times? He kind of had a photographic memory. He could remember people who visited, where they were from, and, and factoids about them. No way. Um, so on your third visit, he, he would photograph you, actually, 
in a black leather jacket that was in uh, <laughs> this room that was kind of a shrine room. There was a shrine to Elvis uh-huh. on the uh, on the mantle, and it was this large frame photo of the king, and it had this hardware store lettering on it and some patriotic stickers. And so he would he had this um, leather jacket hanging there, and once you became a, a, a lifetime member, he would photograph you. And then he would take the film and have it processed at you know a local uh, drugstore and get double prints. He would put one print in his hall of fans on display in, in Graceland too. And then he would save the other print for when the lifetime member came back for the fourth visit. <laughs> so this hallway, would you say it was pretty filled up with faces of fans? He had them lined up side by side from floor to ceiling. There were, I remember only a couple of like naked light bulbs uh, eliminating that room. So it was kind of, it gave it a little uh, eerie effect also. And the, the floor was really sagging in, in that area. Hmm. Um, one other thing that I remember from the Hall of Fans is that he had these dried flowers that he said came from uh, Elvis's funeral. You know, Elvis was first buried uh, there at uh, the cemetery out on uh, Bellevue, and then he was uh, later uh, moved to, you know, the mansion. Interesting. Yes. He claimed that he drank a case of Coca-Cola uh, <laughs> every day. A case. That, that's, that's his claim. Okay. A case, 24 cans. <laughs> oh, I regret that I never met this guy. Um <laughs> So, well, you mentioned, you made a comment about the backyard. What was that like? The backyard, the backyard was the last stop on the, uh, the tour. And I, I like folk art a lot and uh, really grown to like it since visiting Graceland too the first time. Well, in the backyard, Paul, he was inspired the, by the movie Jailhouse Rock. So in the backyard, there was a makeshift electric chair that Paul had built and there was a kitchen colander that he had taken and flipped upside down. And that's what someone would put on their head as they were about to be fried. (laughs) And then he had a car battery attached. He acted as if this was uh, hooked up. And so he was going to give you a shock at the end of the tour. It didn't work, of course, but um, at the end of the tour, he basically says, hey, you're all, you're all out of luck now. It's the end of the line. And that was the way he ended the tour. Yeah, but I did get some good photographs of the, the electric chair, mm-hmm. uh, a jailhouse brought prisoner, which was a mannequin that he had dressed up in the backyard. It was just cool looking to me. And it, like I said, I, I love photographing people's visions, whatever those visions are. It, it was just kind of an organic a uh, piece of uh, folk art to me or outsider art. Yeah. Anybody who's out here listening, Darren DeVolt, you should check out his book, Graceland 2 Revisited with co-authored or documented with Tom Graves. Uh, Tom Graves. Mm-hmm. And you can find it online at Amazon.com. I highly recommend it. Lots of photographs that really give a good glimpse of what this collection was like. Let me ask you, if you could have taken one thing as a souvenir from that house, what would it have been? I would have loved to have had the uh, black leather jacket. Yeah, (laughs) the one for the fans? The one for the fans. In (laughs) fact, uh, the author bio page in our book, uh, I've got a a photo photograph of myself wearing the jacket. and I've got my upper lip curled 
um, <laughs> like a la Elvis. So right. it, it was a hoot. The whole, the whole uh, experience was a hoot. We, we met some wonderful people over in Holly Springs who were friends of Paul's, uh, people who knew Paul. People had stories about Graceland too. Uh, several, you know, people who had visited when they were younger came back on the final tour day. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was one of those southern roadside attractions that I'm drawn to. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll visit mainstream attractions as well, but I really like off off the uh, beaten path types of uh, uh, attractions that are one of a kind. If you know what I mean. Thanks, Darren Devolt for your memories of the time you visited Graceland 2. Go check out his book, Graceland 2 Revisited, and uh, tell us what you think. Next up is Amy McMillan, who was a lifetime member of Graceland 2, and she kind of gives a a description of what it looked like during the day when she went, just because it really stood out to her in the middle of Holly Springs, Mississippi. She kind of gives a description of what that neighborhood looks like in general, which is kind of nice. This is Amy. The one and only time I went to Graceland 2 was the classic middle of the night visit. And I want to say it was like definitely after midnight and before dawn. So let's say like one or two in the morning. And it really was true. It was like, you know, the rumors were true that you could just show up at any time and he would take you paid your money and he'd take you on a tour. And and I want to say this was the mid to late 90s. and um, I just remember that the house seemed, I mean, it was so super crowded with stuff and I kept worrying that I was going to fall through <laughs> um, the floors, but it just seemed like a much bigger or fantastical place in the middle of the night than when I saw it the next time, many years later. Uh, after Mr. McLeod had passed away kind of in um, the light of day. So that was just kind of, I, I think anyone should have gone to have seen it in the middle of the night because I think it was a little more mysterious and kitschy than to see it <laughs> under the sunlight. It was also a little shocking to realize that it was just kind of at the end of a city street and not set away. Like I just kind of remember it, at that visit, it seemed like, more remote from Holly Springs. Not that Holly Springs was large, but right. it was just, um, it just was a different experience. Did you go back after you became a member? Then? Or was it like No. Mm-mm. Okay. Mm-mm. So you didn't take it? No. No. <laughs> no. I guess I should have given the card to <laughs> someone else. It just surfaced years later. What do you, what do you remember thinking about I know you said it was a long time ago because you said his son was still there. I want to say the son was still there. Yeah. Do you remember your impressions of Paul or anything? They were just, you know, I hadn't lived in the Memphis area very long when I went there. I was pretty new to the area. So the whole kind of Elvis fandom and culture was just anything I had really experienced not living here, which was very over the top you know, Elvis impersonators. And so when you move here and you realize not everything is about Elvis all the time, but then you go to a place like that and you realize there's, yes, there really are people who dedicate their lives and their passion to worshiping someone who is long gone. And also at the time too, I was very, very, 
uh, interested, um, probably because I was newer to Memphis, like I became really, really fascinated with like the candlelight vigils at Graceland and the Elvis in tribute Elvis, you know, tribute artist contests that they would do every year during, you know, quote unquote death week. So like the visit to Graceland too was just kind of part of that indoctrination into this kind of obscene, obsessive Elvis culture that I think everyone thinks permeates Memphis all the time. And it really doesn't. I think it permeates more places elsewhere in the world than it actually does here, but it still does here to an extent. Do you regret not going back? Yeah, I mean, I think it just, you know, it, it was just such an odd experience. And um, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I, I went with, you know, the person I was seeing at the time. So it was kind of... How was your date? How was the date? Yeah, I mean, it was with um, uh, the person I was dating for a long time. So I think it just never occurred to me to like go back and, and do that. And and it's funny because I, I drive so much along that road that I, you know, drive by Holly Springs all the time, but um, it just never occurred, like, once I had kids going, hey, kids, let's go to Graceland, too, because it was, it was kind of an odd thing. And again, I think it was one of those things best experienced, maybe under cover of darkness to yeah. kind of add to the whole oh, mystery. And that's the thing, too, is, like, just for anybody that – doesn't know Holly Springs like myself. Mm-hmm. Is it is it like a country town? Oh, it's it, a small town. It's so this must be like an eyesore. Oh yeah, they had a love hate relationship. I think with him there, you know, he brought people into the town. Uh, obviously, but it was mostly kids coming up. I think from Oxford or people coming from Memphis, and and so I think it was you know probably a a love hate relationship. I mean, he definitely helped bring people into Holly Springs, but I don't know if it was like all the time the right people <laughs> that Holly Springs <laughs> wanted to have. But I mean, not that there's really, I mean, Holly Springs is a charming small town, but not that I think there's a lot going on in Holly Springs other than just being down the road from Oxford and not too far from, from Memphis. Thank you, Amy. Thanks, Amy. <laughs> um, and then next up, I think you'll be entertained by this one. Um, it's a couple, uh, Evan Dawes and Emily Van Gilder. They didn't go together. Uh, Evan is a lifetime member, and um, wow. he was one of those those kids that went middle of the night kind of All right. <laughs> people. And Emily went once, and uh, here they are. Paul's kind of outlook on everything was in his own little world, and it was kind of great because he lived in his own little world and would give you glimpses into it and it was more and more satisfying the more more times you went that he actually started to remember you and know your face you would never actually know your name but he would start to know your face and who you were and you could get to know more about him because he would just tell you different stories every time so did you feel like he knew? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, I mean, I probably went... You frequent in there a lot. Yeah, I probably went nine or ten times. That's so. right, you're a lifetime member. Yeah, three-time lifetime member. Yeah, his membership <laughs> passes. Yeah. Barely. Yeah, I have one that's like hanging on by a thread, and then one that is um, still in pretty good shape. 
Okay. Then I gave one away so that someone else didn't have to pay the five dollars to get in. Oh, that was very thoughtful. Yeah. And did they? Did you take your picture? Uh, he did. Yes. Okay. Uh, towards the like end of when I was going, it had started getting backed up to the point that the pictures that he was showing of everyone who had come in were pictures that were taken like five or six years ago. Like, so he took everyone's picture. I don't know what became of them because he did have a lot of them actually developed and in big like floor to seal uh, plastic things that you could look through. They were all clipped to the walls with big like D-ring hooks and so you could flip through, movies. and it was yeah, just like all long, big, long sections. And so he made everyone put on a leather jacket and pick up a guitar. <laughs> and sometimes he would give you a microphone, the big, like, old-school box microphone. And sometimes he'd give you a wrestling belt that was, like, an Elvis, like, King of the World heavyweight championship belt to, like, go over your shoulder with your guitar on the other shoulder. He would tell you stories based on items. So he would walk through the house and he would, you know, touch on an item. And he had the same things in every room that he would always talk about. But there's so much stuff just everywhere that you could point to any minuscule random piece of memorabilia and ask him. And it would create another 15-minute story, whether it was completely made up or true or... That's how you'd end up taking, like, six-hour tours. You could go, and if it wasn't, like, a super crazy night, if there weren't a ton of people constantly knocking, because he would never interrupt a tour for someone someone new. new. So he would start with, say, if we went down with a group of five people, he would start the tour, and he could do it in, like, 30 minutes or so. And if you got, you know, he would hear a knock on the door and he would go and say, hang on, I got a tour going on. You know, we'll be done when we're done. And then he would start the next tour with the people who were waiting outside. So if there was a night when you would go down at like one or two o'clock in the morning and there wasn't really anything going on, there were times where we were walking out as the sun was coming up. Like, because you were waiting for the tour? No, on the tour. You, okay, like, just because nobody interrupted. Just because no one interrupted and you could just pick up a random <laughs> article in the house and go like, Paul, what is this? Like, where'd you get this? And he would have some elaborate story about how he brought those back from China on a DC-30 late at night because they were technically illegal, but he got them still. And yeah, so he had lots of stuff like that and he would just loved talking and rambling i i always wondered what it would be like to go during the day because he gives tours anytime all day and he does like big groups that would come down and like the late at night tours were definitely x-rated to a certain extent like he just would cuss like a sailor and say dirty sexual jokes and show you all of his guns and yeah, they, it was definitely a different tour than what I'm assuming the tour, the bus full of like 200 Chinese tourists got at 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> yeah. He was definitely a character. Uh, I was a little wary of him, definitely. Did you guys go uh, together? No, no. We never went together. We talked about it often, though. I feel like it always would get brought up with people... 
moving to Memphis and talking about Graceland. Yeah, saying, don't go to Graceland, go to Graceland too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, it was very overwhelming, the amount of stuff in the house. There were, the walls were covered. It'd be like being an episode of Hoarders, but it was all Elvis. Did everything you see have some connection to Elvis? Yes, everything. Every. Millions of portraits of him everywhere. It was like. Florida Seal, like vinyls, and every Elvis trinket or toy or just covered. People would bring him, like, it's like a Chinese book about Elvis, and he would, like, put it up on the wall. Like, people brought him stuff. You hear about, like, all my friends' grandmothers are still obsessed with Elvis. <laughs> they still mourn his death. And so, like, I understand the obsession with Elvis, but all of this stuff, I've never yeah. seen anything like that. I mean, he even named his kid Elvis. Mm-hmm. And so he had it all set up. Like, he had certain things grouped together. So, like, one room was all vinyls. And, like, he just had tons and tons of vinyls. But then he also has, like, an original Elvis Blue Christmas, like, on the blue vinyl, like, that's behind glass up at kind of the center of that room for everyone to see. Definitely a character, though. Just him at the house, he has... I think he was married a couple of times. Yeah, he was married a couple of times and he had lots of pictures of his sons. His son looked like Elvis, kind of, sort of. I mean, and so he had his son dressed up. What did he say? My son's a dead ringer. ringer. My son's a dead ringer for Elvis. (laughs) But so, and he kind of looked like Elvis, I guess. Not really. If he could have taken one thing from that house as a souvenir to leave with, what would it have been? Honestly, probably the electric chair <laughs> that he had built in the backyard. And it's funny because it's not even like Elvis memorabilia. Like I, He had some story that tied it into Elvis somehow, but it was very obviously just two by fours and like... Because of Jailhouse Rock, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So he, he tied it in with Jailhouse Rock, and he had his, like, <laughs> theme to it and everything. But it was just, like, a shabby chair with <laughs> old Christmas lights on it that he had put a bunch of, like, car batteries underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that would probably be... I would probably take that and keep it in my backyard. How <laughs> what would you take? I would take... At least one, but if not both, of the lions that were in the front of the house. At the front of the house. Were they statues? Yeah, <laughs> lion statues. <laughs> but preferably no, when they are. Those are great. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right? They have to be the pink ones, though. Yeah. I didn't like them as much when they were blue. Um, he so painted the lions when he painted the house. Yeah, it sounded like everything went got painted. Oh, yeah. If it, if and it. someone has them. The two lines, or mm-hmm. just okay. You would take just one now, or both. Oh, po- you can't separate them. <laughs> I would take both. Uh, yeah, definitely take both. Yeah, the lions were always a point of conversation, and one of the more X-rated points of conversation because. <gasps> <Don't say it>. <laughs> <laughs> you got to now. <laughs> <laughs> because he would always talk about how frame it right. How drunk. 
people would come down and have a good time with each other on the lions <laughs> at very early times of the morning and how numerous times he would come out to hear noise outside and come outside and find women topless on the lions having their picture taken. So he, he liked the lions. A lot. <laughs> As did Emily. As did Emily. <laughs> Not for that reason. <laughs> no. <laughs> for the record, that never happened <laughs> with me. <laughs> and thanks Evan and Emily. And from this, Emily had a friend who also visited Graceland too regularly, and she asked him the question of, what would you have kept as a souvenir if you could? And this was his answer. The question is, if you could take one thing as a souvenir from Graceland 2, anything, what would it be? Uh, my name is Barrett, and I would take probably the little guns that he keeps in his waistband. He's like, I keep this in just in case of emergencies. And then he would bend over and lift his pants like, and he'd go, this one's just in case there's another emergency. <laughs> one time I was there and he gave, he showed us, it was me and two other people. He gave us a long tour and it was like six hours and he pulled out a lead baseball bat, like a lead filled baseball bat from under his bed. <laughs> I might, I might want that. Thanks, Barrett. Thanks, Barrett. <laughs> yeah. That's intense. So some of these are the reasons that you don't go alone. Yeah. So here's the way <laughs> I, I would like to end it. Paul, as you can tell, was just, he's just such a character. And as I've said in the interviews, and I probably just said earlier, I regret not seeing him. There's a part of him that's just, when I hear the story, and when I started to do a little research on him, it was kind of sad. It was kind of because his whole life was really wrapped around being a fan of Elvis and he committed his life to that. And so on one end, you have um, borderline creepy, obsessed, <laughs> loses his family just about over this touring 24. I mean, this is 24 seven. You could show up at any time of the day, any day of the week, and he would give you yeah. a tour. So there's that aspect to it. But then on the other end, there are people who genuinely love the guy and he brought in so much tourism for Holly Springs, Mississippi. And there are people like me who appreciate that, like somebody who does like create an attraction and create something that's so unusual and weird and can live that way. That's why there was a cross on arts exhibit on him. And that's why when people found out he was dead, like there were just like people were in remorse. And there was even a candlelight visual to mark his passing. In Holly yeah, I remember seeing that. I think it's like, it's like you can say, oh, this person was obsessed with this thing and it's sad. But then if you look like the other side of that is like, but he created around it, right? So like, like Elvis made his art and then that art inspired Paul McLeod's art. He like went all in with his passion and then he let other people come in and like take part in that artwork as well, like his art of his life and experience it and take part in it. And really allowed people, I think, to really take what he made and use it how they want. Because I think like some people just went for a gag. Some people actually appreciated it. Some pe Like there's such a spectrum of, I think, like how people went to experience it and what they walked away with. And he just like allows for that. Yeah. You know, which is kind of kind of neat. Yeah, for sure. You probably know this too, but there was also a uh, 
an auction for all the stuff. And he claimed yeah, it was worth right. like millions, you know, but yeah. uh, I, ca- I can't remember the numbers when I looked them up. Well, like some of the stuff he would claim was like real, like these are the real blue suede shoes or something, right? Yeah, but it was just, like, I think a lot of it was storytelling, like, yeah. which, which made it kind of uh, unique. And quir- it was one of the quirkiness about this guy is uh, he made it real, like he said. Yeah. Amy, the person that one of the people you heard on the interview knows the guy who bought the pink Cadillac at the auction. <laughs> now that's a prize. Yes. Ultimately, the home was purchased by friends of Graceland, too. Uh, real names are Marie and Jeffrey Underwood, I believe, is what I read from an article. And you want to guess how much they paid for it? 45000 Not bad. 5500 Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless I wrote it wrong, I put down 5500 I guess maybe if they were, yeah, like as a, it's like a charity. Yeah, thing. I guess. Because um, surely the property is worth more than that, right? That I'm confused. You know what? Let me look it up right now just to make sure. <laughs> because when I'm saying, I'm like, what's it? But it was. That's what's so weird. Well, maybe because it's like friends of like they just sold it like for cheap for them so that they could do something with it. Yeah, 5500 Okay. Oh, well. It was a long time when I did research for this podcast. That's why I doubted myself. Man, I do not need to get on Jeopardy. Yeah. I will just fail miserably. <laughs> 45000 Well, you, I mean, that makes sense for a good price on a home. Yeah. <laughs> like fifty-five. There's no way. Their plan is to restore the building to its state before McLeod owned it. That's what their hope is. And their hope is to preserve Paul's legacy. Wait, so they're going to put it back the way it was, but... Are they going to put all his stuff in it or? That was all at the end of the article that I read. There oh. was no like. Because other people own all the stuff, right? Yeah. A lot of it got auctioned out. I'm sure there's some, There, I'm sure there's plenty of creative ways to honor his legacy. Yeah. I'm interested to see what happens with that. As am I. Thanks again to Darren, Amy, Evan, and Emily, and Barrett for tuning us in on what Graceland 2 was like and the memories. And for all those listening, please leave us your own memories of Graceland 2, because I know there are a lot out there that have their own stories. Please share through SpeakPipe on our website, yeah. or even just write in through a blog. Yeah. SpeakPipe is currently, you have a minute and a half for your message. So if you get cut off, just call back and just keep talking, because we can see who it's from. So you can leave multiple voicemails for us, and we will string it all together don't forget, you can visit our show notes, memphistypehistory.com slash Graceland2. That's with T-O-O, not the number. And you can see photographs from Darren DeVault, who published Graceland2 Revisited and was so gracious to share some photographs for us, along with some photographs of the Crosstown exhibit, that art exhibit that I visited, and uh, and possibly future stories of other people who visited Graceland too. Yeah. All right. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. We like your type. You've been listening to Memphis Type History, the podcast. It would mean so much to us if you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Be sure to subscribe and never miss an episode. Want to be part of Memphis Type History and get behind the scenes content, merch, and more? Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Memphis Type History. That's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Memphis Type History. Find more Memphis Type History on our blog at memphistypehistory.com, on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest as Memphis Type History, and on Twitter at Memphis Type. <laughs>